I just want to uh, echo what Justice was saying with our full party. That's kind of an all-hands-on-deck thing. Think about it. Uh, our church, if you counted up all the people, um, we probably have, I don't know, on a normal Sunday, maybe 80, 90 people. <clears throat> um, 350 people coming. That's a lot of people, right? Um, that's one of our key uh, outreaches and ministries that we did last year and that we want to do again. But in order for us to be able to minister to 350 people, probably more this year, um, that's what we pray, we really need uh, all hands on deck. So whatever you can do to help, um, this is an opportunity for our church to come together and to minister uh, collectively uh, to the community at large, in this case, specifically uh, SCCHE. But um, if you've been in homeschooling long enough, and some of you have, um, there's a wide range of homeschool families, all the way from strong, godly believers to unbelievers, right? Um, even atheists. <clears throat> so there is an uh, excellent opportunity there to do your own outreach. We will present the gospel, so please be praying for that as well. And an opportunity just to fellowship uh, with other um, people. So I encourage you to talk to Loreen. Uh, to help out, make plans to show up that day to be a part of it. It is going to be a good time. I even think we got some, did we get the horses uh, secured? We did, look at Margaret back there on the ball. So we're going to have horse rides for, for the kids. <clears throat> uh, sorry, adults, it's just for the kids. <laughs> but it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, with that, let's get into the word. Let us look at Obadiah. We're going to start in verse 5, Obadiah. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed, would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Why not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau. And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Let's pray. Father, thank you that today we can gather as your children to worship you, to hear your word, to fellowship with one another. Lord, help us to walk in spirit and truth before you in all things. Lord, we, we come before you and, and we want to say we want to be a people that are busy about your word and about what tasks you have for us. We ask your blessing upon the fall party that many, many people would come, many people would hear the gospel, and many would respond in faith. God, be gracious to our children uh, back in catechism class right now that they would receive your word for what it truly is, your word. Let them receive it. Let them take it in, God. Let those seeds bear much fruit in their lives. Lord, we pray for the cooks as they continue to raise support and prepare to go overseas. Let your hand of blessing be upon them as they're raising their support. Give them favor in the sight of men as they're sharing uh, the heart that you've given them for an unreached people that desperately need your word, God. 
So we pray for them now and for the years to come that they'd have a fruitful ministry, Lord, that you would fill them with your spirit to walk in your ways and to do your will in all things, God. Father, thank you for the privilege of, of having uh, a footprint in this, in this county, St. Charles, that we can make a difference, Lord, that we can uh, not only uh, take your word and eat it upon, uh, into our own souls, Lord, but we can also take it and we can share that with others, God. Your word is as sweet as honey, as, as, as your word says, God, and may we, may we taste, taste that honey, Lord, and then share that with others. Be with us now, Lord, as we know you are. Fill us with your spirit to hear from you rightly, God, and continue to be glorified in, in our midst, we ask with the authority you give us in Jesus. Amen. All right, if we took the top ten terms or words in the Bible, justice would be one of them. And every culture has a concept of justice. And it actually is integral. It's integral to the makeup of that culture. Think about the different, the different nations that we have. I forget how many countries, 160 plus or so. But does Pakistan have a concept of justice? Yes. What about North Korea? Yes. What about Iran? Okay. So every country and even every culture has some type of, of concept of justice. Now, it might not be biblical justice, but it'd be something that they would call justice. Here's the thing. If the church, what, what, let me just ask you this. What if we adopted North Korea's definition of justice within the church? That wouldn't be so hot, would it? Okay, it wouldn't be so good. So if the church abandons justice as the Bible defines it, and then we just adopt whatever form we, our own selfish hearts might want, or what the culture is telling us to bend to, What's going to happen? Justice will no longer be justice. What is, what's it going to become? It's going to become a perverted form of justice. The gospel ends up getting watered down. So this is a huge thing. When we're talking about justice and understanding what God's word says on it, we need to make sure that whatever we want to believe lines up with his word. And if it doesn't, then we need to shape our thoughts according to what the word says. Amen? Think about Edom for a second. They had their own form of justice. How did they match up to the biblical form? Well, we've seen the last few weeks that they failed and failed and failed. They had a form of justice, but it wasn't true justice. Now, when Micah, if you look at Micah chapter 6, hold your place in Obadiah because we're coming back. But in Micah chapter 6, we see him talking about justice. In verse 6 of Micah chapter 6, he says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? And this is the answer. He has told you, O oh man, what is good? 
And what does the Lord require of you? But to do, what did it say? Justice. But to do justice and to love kindness. That's that word, and justice mentioned it earlier. Uh, Hesed, to love God's love, essentially is what it's saying. So do justice, love the love that God has, and to walk humbly with your God. But he says to do justice. Now, when we think of justice, a lot of times we think of it in the negative. We think of it as something being done because somebody messed up. Justice must be what? Served. So we think of it more in the sense of of retribution. But there's a positive sense as well. Now, when we talk about biblical justice, that's the umbrella of which some of the things we're going to talk about now. We see two types when we talk about biblical justice. Now, we should just be able to use the term justice and not have to use an adjective in front of it because we're going to see in a little bit, I'm not always a fan of using adjectives in front of justice because usually what ends up happening is we distort the true understanding of justice. So biblical justice, there's really two categories or two types, we might call it. One is commutative justice. What's that? Well, that's just the idea of loving your neighbor as yourself. Micah here is telling the Israelites to do justice. Now, is he wanting them as individuals to go out and dole out justice upon people? No. What does he mean when he's talking about justice? It'd be that commutative sense that he's talking about. It's really, in its boiled-down form, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the commutative justice, living in right relationship with God and others. We're all called to display this type of justice this commutative justice. But there's also another type of justice. It's called distributive justice. Now, are we all supposed to display that? The answer is no. This is the justice that is given to authorities. Authorities would include parents. They have a distributive justice. It would include pastors in the church. They have a distributive justice. This would include civil magistrates or authority civil magistrates or authorities in the state they have a distributive justice what is this this is the, the this is the type that we normally think of where it's rendering judgment that needs to be a righteous judgment but it's rendering judgment where though does this authority to dole out justice where does this come from god if you miss that part you're going to get justice way off as we're going to see So the distributive justice is given to authorities, parents, pastors, civil magistrates. But when we look at justice as a whole, back to that umbrella of biblical justice, and then we look at the two types of it, this means a few things for us. One, when we're talking about like the distributive justice, there has to be impartiality. Look at Leviticus 19. Y'all there? Okay. Last week we read earlier parts of Leviticus talking about when you're reaping the land and how you're supposed to do it. It goes on in verse 11 of Leviticus 19. You shall not steal. You shall not deal 
falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with, all, with you all, all night until the morning. What is he doing here? He's setting up, I mean, what you could call justice. This is God's standard, and he's showing us what justice is. Verse 14, you shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God, I am the Lord. Then notice what he says in verse 15, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. In righteousness, that's that same word there, the same root where we would translate justice. You could, you could translate that same idea or concept, justice. Here's the thing, notice what it says in verse 15. You shall not be partial, there's two groups mentioned, right? Partial to the poor. It's actually possible that you can do injustice to the poor by favoring them. If you're going to show impartiality, it has to be shown across the board. Not only can you not prefer the rich, or here he says the great in my version, but you can't show partiality to the poor as well. A just system is going to treat everyone how? Equally, right? So these, if you're an authority, there's impartiality, right? Are you treating one kid different than the other? Hopefully not. Now, how you dole out justice for the four-year-old might look different than the 10-year-old might look different than the 14-year-old. But you're treating your children equally, the same. You're not harping on one, and then the very next one does the exact same thing, and you let that go. Would that be right? No. So, impartiality. Second, look at Exodus 23. He starts in verse 4, Exodus 23. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under his burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. I mean, here he's saying one aspect of justice is even though you might have people that hate you or you don't care for or even your enemy, as it says here, you still have to be impartial. You still have to treat them with kindness and love. He goes on, you shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous for I will not acquit the wicked. And then notice what he says in verse 8, and you shall not, you shall take no bribe for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress the sojourner, you know the heart of the sojourner for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So, back to that distributive justice, you're not taking bribes, you're not being swayed, you're not, you're not seeing someone, in, and they're, you, oh, if I do this, I'm going to get a favor. There's not interest groups or lobbies that are coming and being like, well, uh, our interest is here, and we've donated this much to your campaign, so we really need you to do this for us, right? It happens, sadly. No, impartiality, and you're not open to bribes. The, the Edomites failed with both. 
I mean, no love of neighbor whatsoever. The community of justice that they were, I mean, right here, what we're reading, if you meet your enemy's ox, the idea is, is even your enemy, your personal enemy, but even your enemy, you're going to be kind and gracious to. So the Edomites failed there. They failed in their impartiality with judgment. They're just judging however they want to judge. However they want, whatever, whatever suits them, whatever is according to their purpose. They took judgment into their own hands. Have you ever taken judgment into your own hands? Doesn't go well, right? And it doesn't go well. <clears throat> so when we talk about justice, we've got to be careful that we're not qualifying it. Biblical justice is biblical justice is biblical justice. That's why I hesitate to put any type of adjective in front of the word justice. Today, you can hear about the term reproductive justice, right? Like, what is that? It's been used to argue for abortion rights. How does the argument go for reproductive justice? It's the unborn are not fully human, but rather are the powerless, voiceless property of mothers to dispose of as they choose. I mean, that's really what it is. That's reproductive justice. Women have the justice to murder their own children, right? Reproductive justice. But think about that. I mean, that, that's espoused from all sorts of organizations that are pro-choice. But we, we, can just, we can just substitute a couple words there and end up 150 years ago Back when we had slavery in this very state. Think about it. Substitute. Let me read those words again. The unborn are not fully human, but rather are the powerless, voiceless property of mothers to dispose of as they choose. We could just substitute a few words, and here's how it sounds. Black slaves are not fully human, but rather are the powerless, voiceless property of slave owners to dispose of as they choose. And we could call that property justice. But would that be justice? Not at all. Neither is reproductive justice. That's not justice. So don't fall for the trap that simply because the term or phrase has justice in it, that the term has merit and the term is okay to use. So when we, we are looking at justice, you know, now we hear the term social justice. Well, is that biblical justice? It's really not. And we can compare the two, and we can hold up social justice and see what it believes on different things, and we can compare it with biblical justice and see what it compares, um, believes on different things, and they fail. They are not lining up whatsoever. So think about it. When you think of social justice, when you say, what is reality? Well, the human mind defines what is ultimate reality. Whatever they want goes. But what does the Bible say? It says the God of the Bible he is the one that defines ultimate reality. We can think whatever we want, but it's what God says is what is true. Let God be true, right? And every man a liar. So he tells us what it is and how it is. Think about social justice. Who are we? What does social justice say? Our identity is socially determined. But what does God say? We are his image bearers. We are his creation. Created by him, we have the image of God, his stamp, boom, placed upon us. That makes us of great worth. 
regardless of where or what country he places it in or what station in life he places us. So it's not determined socially, it's determined by God himself. And every single person has great worth. What about the fundamental problem as human beings? What would you say the Bible says the fundamental problem is in one word? Sin. We could call it rebellion, right? Man has rebelled against God. Have you rebelled against God? Yes. And hopefully, you've repented of that rebellion, right? If you're a believer, you have. But, but the Bible would say our problem is rebellion. We've rebelled against the holy God. We've decided to do things our way. We've chosen not his path, but we've chosen our own path. And time and time again, we choose our own thing and our own thing and our own thing and our own thing. We've rebelled against him. The Bible says in Ephesians what? We are enemies. Enemies. Enemies of God. What does the social justice say? What's our fundamental problem? Oppression. Namely, white males have maintained power structures that oppress everyone else. Women, ethnic minorities, gay, lesbian people. But the fundamental problem, brothers and sisters, is rebellion. It's a rebellion right here. Right here in the heart. What's the solution to the problem? What does the Bible say is the solution? What's the solution to our rebellion? Repentance, but, but it's the gospel, right? Which is repentance and trust. The solution to our rebellion is the gospel. And what is the gospel? That God sent his own son. Why? To, re to receive the wrath that we deserved. He saw us in our rebellion. And what does he do? He sends his son to redeem a people for his own. He wants to save us from the destruction that is to come. And so he does. The, the solution to the problem, the gospel, what's the solution with social justice? Revolution. Oppressed people must come together to unite to overthrow the oppressive power structures, systems, and institutions. And in this case, the ends justify the means. If we have to burn down buildings, we burn down buildings. So how can we be saved? Well, you all already said it, the biblical worldview. What is it? Repent and trust in Christ. That's how we're saved. Well, how can we be saved with social justice? Well, in that view, the victims are morally innocent. They don't need saving. They're victims. So there's, there's really, when you really think about it, there's no aspect of salvation. How do we know what is true? Well, we as believers have it right here, right? Divine revelation. Divine revelation. What about social justice? Well, the notions of objective truth, reason, logic, evidence, argument, those are discredited tools. Actually blew my mind when I first was reading that. I'm like, I just can't believe that people... So you actually can't reason with people because those are discredited tools used by who? The oppressors. So in that form, you gain knowledge of truth through victims. It's all self-knowledge and subjective knowledge. What about ultimate authority? We would say, who has the ultimate authority? God. In the social justice, the victims are the final authority. Is there a future final judgment? The Bible says what? Yes. Jesus will return. Amen. He will return, and he will judge 
the nations. What about social justice? Is there a future final judgment? No. And so injustice has to be rooted out right here, right now, today. Why? Because there is no tomorrow. Here's the thing. Social justice, we can call it, it's, it's got different names. Critical race theory, critical theory, some call it like critical social justice, all those things. It offers no theory of salvation. Only perpetual penance. It can, it's never enough. It's like that proverb we read last week. You know, Sheol and, and Abaddon are never satisfied. Well, well, neither is social justice. It's never enough. You can never do enough. You can never do enough. Well, here's the thing, brothers and sisters. Justice belongs to God. And as his image bears, whatever justice we carry out, it must be his justice. Not what we want. It, it has to be his justice. So it has to be a biblical justice, and it must be his as he defines it, not as we want it to be defined. Anything else, anything else, anything else is a miscarriage of justice. So the Edomites, they had their type of justice. It wasn't biblical justice, but it was their form of justice, just like all the nations today. They have their form of justice. Listen, if it's not God's justice, then it's not really justice. You can dress it up, you can call it justice, but it isn't. It has to be grounded in the word, founded upon his truth, or it's not, it's not justice, it's injustice. So what does this mean? God's justice. I mean, our laws today, in large part, less and less so as time goes on, but our laws today um, still rather have a form of biblical justice in them. You want to know why? Is when our founders set up this nation and then the different states were setting up their own constitutions, some of them literally just copy and pasted sections of Leviticus into their laws. Copy-paste. You can't be more biblically just than that, right? But that's what they would do. Here you have the, the Edomites running their own justice. Greed, taking advantage of the downtrodden as we looked at. Exploitation, human trafficking. Listen, as I said last week, how a nation acts shows what the nation believes. It, we can say all we want as a nation, and at the end of the day, the actions truly show what we believe. And here's the thing. Many people, they hate true justice. You want to know why? Because they're judged as well. If you talk about true justice, the biblical justice, just justice, guess what? We all fall under that umbrella. And we all will be judged. No one wants to be judged. I mean, you get in a conversation with someone, like, are you judging me? Are you judging me? But acknowledging you will be judged by God is important. And that's why people hate true justice. It means that judgment one day comes for them. There is a citizen of Athens way a couple thousand years ago. He was asked why he voted for the condemnation of Aristides. Aristides was called the just. And he was one of the most outstanding statesmen the nation had produced. And they're like, so they're asking this citizen, hey, why'd you vote uh, against him? Why'd you vote for his condemnation? He said, I voted against him simply because I was tired of hearing him called the just. 
Like, people don't like true justice. And people get jealous when they see justice being followed out biblically. They hate those who walk in truth and righteousness. True, biblical truth and righteousness. Think about the Jews. Think about their views on ethnicity in the first century A.D. It was a big deal for the Jews to be the Jews. And they had, they had attitudes against anyone who was a non-Jew. We are of Abraham, and you aren't. But what does the gospel come along and do? It obliterates the Jew and the Greek. Neither Jew nor Greek. Look at Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3, verse 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized in Christ Jesus have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The gospel comes and wipes away all those distinctions. We are all equal at the foot of the cross. All equal. Greek, Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised. Colossians 3 says a similar thing. Look there. In, in 3... Verse 9, he says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. <clears throat> Again, the gospel, it obliterates those distinctions. If you do any type of research on this one little verse here in verse 11, and you learn about the Scythians, they were like the worst of the worst of the worst of the worst. You read what their practices were and how they acted and what they did, They'd, they would eat their, you know what, what they used for bowls was human skulls. That's what they ate their food out of. And that's pretty, that's pretty bad. And what God's telling us here, what? But Christ is all and in all. Like the gospel comes and he can save anyone from any tribe or nation. I mean, we're praying for where the cooks are going, right? Any tribe, any nation, we're praying. God, just like he talks about in Acts, right? There's many people in this, in this uh, I think he says, like, country or land to be saved, right? God's appointed people. God's appointed, there's people appointed that the cooks are going to be reaching. People in land. The gospel comes and it, and it takes away the Greek, the Jew, the circumcised, the uncircumcised, the barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But, but what were the disciples learning in their ministry? They still had that first century Jewish mindset. Look at John chapter 4. 
This is the, the woman at the well. You all probably know the story. <clears throat> he meets a Samaritan woman. They're traveling. He meets her. Ends up with a couple verses we hear pretty regularly in, at the end of John uh, 4, in the middle of John 4. Here's what I want to focus on. In verse 27, it says in John 4, just then his disciples came back, they marveled that he was talking with a woman. So, I mean, it was kind of already scandalous that they're, they're going to stop in the land of, of Samaria. Like, Jews don't have anything to do with Samaritans. Samaritans don't have anything to do with Jews. <clears throat> and it says they marveled that he's talking with, they're like, I mean, it's kind of like Jesus, hey, I mean, we, we could probably put our minds around you talking to a Samaritan man, but, but now you're talking to a Samaritan woman? So they marveled at it. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So they're thinking here in terms of race. They're thinking in terms of gender. And Jesus is wanting to turn that upside down. And he's like, look, I came for everyone. Everyone. Like everyone. So yeah, was he spent, sent on that mission uh, uh, to, to Israel? Yeah, I came for the lost sheep of Israel, right? But we get story after story after story. Syrophoenician woman, right? Of God displaying that Jesus is for all. He's reaching out to all. So, so their mindset was an unbiblical mindset, and Jesus is showing them that. Think of the, the Hindu caste system that, 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 that we have today in, other, in Hindu, predominantly Hindu countries. I mean, you can't get out of your caste system. If you're at the bottom of the bottom, you're, you're basically an untouchable, and you can't rise out of it. You are where you're at. And you're stuck there, regardless of what you try to do. People like that need to hear the freedom that's in Christ Jesus. They need to hear that freedom. And some of the gospel is spreading in those lower castes because they've been treated like such dirt that hearing the, the refreshment of the good news of the gospel, they are clinging on to it like, like a lifeline. In order to, to be saved, they are hearing the gospel and responding in faith. When we talk about classes or groups, the gospel transcends it. There's really only two groups if you want to talk about it. You read through the scriptures, there's only two groups. There's the saved and the unsaved. The saved and the unsaved. There's not much other distinction than that. But what, is, what, is, what, is, what happens? What happens when a person goes from unsaved to saved, when they receive the gospel? Transformation. Gospel transformation. I want to read this uh, story. You might have heard it before about Corey Tenboom. She and her family, they, they hid the, the Jews in, in, in Germany <clears throat> and ended up getting caught, and her and her sister end up going to a concentration camp. And her sister ends up dying. Her sister's name was Betsy. She mentions her in what I'm going to read. Uh, her sister ends up dying there. Uh, but Corey ends up uh, making it out. <clears throat> so this is after, after the war, and uh, she's sharing here. She says, It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filling out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. 
the huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath, the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück, concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fräulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had been so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard in there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fräulein, again the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven, and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart, but forgiveness is not an emotion, I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand, I can do that much, you supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me, and as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. That's reconciliation. This is only possible through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Social justice doesn't do that. Critical race theory doesn't do that. The gospel does this. And a lot of what we're discussing, it deals with identity. Like, how do we identify ourselves? Here's the thing. The gospel, it isn't added to our identity. It's not added to our identity. It doesn't go on top of our identity. Our identity is radically changed by the gospel. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look what he says, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So what are you if you're in Christ? You are that new creation. That's, like, that's a new identity. Radically changed. So who does God say we are? That is what we are grounded in when it comes to our identity. We are blood-bought believers, children of the living God. And we share this truth with others. We share it with others. We call them to submit to God. Our identity is transformed. The old is gone. 
and the new has come. I, I started to share with a lady the other day, <clears throat> and, uh, and she turned to me and she's like, are you a true believer? <laughs> I was like, yes, I am. And, and she was a believer herself. We had a good little conversation. But our identity is transformed when Christ comes into our life radically transformed. And some of you might be saying, like, this is elementary. We know this stuff. Well, we might know this stuff, but it's good to be reminded of this stuff. But in another sense, it's not so elementary. <clears throat> We've got professors at supposedly one of the most conservative Baptist seminaries in the U.S. pushing the critical race theory and the social justice. We've got uh, Vice President Kamala Harris addressing the National Baptist Convention just a few days ago. You can see the video talking about abortion, and she receives thundering applause. The National Baptist Convention. We have the Salvation Army, founded on gospel roots, incorporating critical race theory. Listen, a little leaven. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. All it takes is a little leaven. And so all the sites are being, are being turned onto those advocating biblical justice, for those standing for truth, for those pushing back against the narrative that's being pushed. There was a conservative uh, Christian group ha had a fall festival <clears throat> uh, just a few weeks ago. And the FBI was surveilling it. Conservative Christian group surveilling it. We got a short video. I just want to show you like 10 seconds of this clip so you can see this video of what these potentially riotous and dangerous people were doing. Thank you. That's what's being deemed dangerous. And in one sense, guess what? We should be dangerous with the gospel. All right? And yes, you know what? The gospel threatens the very powers and structures that are entrenched in this country. I'm not just talking uh, human. I'm really talking demonic. And it hears the gospel coming, and yes, it gets afraid. And it will use men and women to try to come against us however it might see fit. And we're going to have a fall festival. Maybe we should do some singing this year, Justice. We're going to have a fall festival. Um, and we just, we just sang uh, 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 that song, one of those songs today, I believe. <clears throat> That's what they're deeming. That's where our money's being spent. Uh, those are dangerous people there. <clears throat> Guess what? We're not much different than that group. All right? You stand for truth. Guess what? The enemy comes for you. The enemy. I'm talking Satan. That's the enemy. What is our struggle against? Flesh and blood? No. No. Some people are doing it because they're deceived. Some people are doing it out of ignorance. But at the root is the forces of evil. And that's what we stand against. The gospel comes, though. Jesus comes. Just like we studied in 2 Thessalonians, what happens? He shows up. He, like, opens his mouth, boom, it's game over. 
And that's what the gospel did, which each one of us that has had believed. It, it took us down, slayed our hearts, gave us a heart of repentance and trust in Christ. And those people out there that are believing and deceived and, and ignorant and believing unbiblical things, those are the people, brothers and sisters, they need the gospel just as much as we do. They need it very much so. So what does justice have to do with the gospel? Well, it's the wrath of God is satisfied. We sing about it. The wrath of God is satisfied. Justice served on the cross. God's wrath poured out on his own son so that why? The wrath could be abated for those who believe. And our identity matters. The church's identity, our identity as people, as believers, but again, our identity is primarily seen through the lens of how God sees us. We are his children. And here's the thing, the church, the church, the church has a response. We've got three options that we can do. We can conform. That's a, that's a response. Okay, that's what the liberal churches are doing. They just conform. I read something today that the, <clears throat> the Roman Catholic Church, uh, I think it was like 33 out of 55 bishops, passed this um, resolution of sorts. It needed two-thirds, so it didn't officially pass. But if they would have gotten four more votes, it would have passed. Basically, um, you know, christening, gay marriage, and, and all the transgender and all that stuff. Conform. That's an option. We can accommodate. We see some churches doing that. You know, let's make room, room at the table for some of these different theories of justice. Pull up a chair. We'll add that view. You can we can accommodate by not speaking about it. Or we can resist. I mean, those are the options. Conform, accommodate, resist. I'm going to put before you that we need to resist because it's an unbiblical system of thought. Our brothers and sisters, the gospel gets watered down if we add anything to the gospel. It gets watered down when we start believing things that aren't true about the God, about his system, and about his truth. So we resist. Remember the definition that we talked about when it comes to justice. When we talk about God's justice, it means that God always acts in accordance. He always acts in accordance with what is right. And he himself is the final standard of what is right. He spells it out. He shows it clearly. We see it clearly. Divine justice at work in his son's death. You want justice? You want real justice? You want real biblical justice? It's our Savior bearing the wrath of God. It's God designed to reconcile his children to himself, knowing that his justice must be satisfied. And it was through the sacrifice of Jesus. So what does God do to satisfy his justice? He pours out his wrath on his son so that his justice is satisfied. Listen, they don't talk about that in social justice. They don't talk about that in critical race theory. They just don't talk about a period out there. But it's the truth. And the only hope, the only hope, the only hope for dealing with any of society's woes and ills is the gospel. That's where it starts, the gospel. So the answer, when justice and judgment arrive, is for us, first, to repent. We have to repent. God calls all men everywhere 
To what? To repentance. He calls all men everywhere to repent. In Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And what's it revealed against? All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so were all of us at some point. <clears throat> the saved, what do we do? What do the children of God do? We call the children of darkness to repentance. The saved call the unsaved to repentance. But it starts with us. First Peter talks about judgment. Judgment starts where? In the household of God. So it starts with us. We need to make sure we're walking rightly before God, that we've repented and truly trusted in him, that we're not just hearing words and nodding our head and then not walking in righteousness and truth, that God has truly grabbed a hold of our heart and has transformed us. Then we take that and we reach out in love to advance the kingdom by the Spirit of God. He, he does a work in us, and then we're used by him to spread that truth, that gospel truth. Are you hearing me? So we repent and we trust. And then as we have been forgiven, as we have been redeemed, we take that and we share that hope with others. That is the hope for our nation. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for covering us with the blood of Jesus that all our sins are forgiven. Lord, help us to be people who walk in righteousness and in truth. Help us to be those bought by the blood of your Son that call others to repentance. Help us to be people that are grounded in your word. Advance in your kingdom according to your standards. Help us to trust, knowing that your timing and will is good and perfect. Lord, we ask that you'd continue to go before us, continue to give us opportunities to share that message of hope and truth the message given to us. Lord, help us to be reminded that we are the new creation, that we are your children. We ask for your glory. Amen.